Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy, Lord, that we never get tired of. And so we just want to hear from you now, and we ask that you would guide us and lead us by your Spirit uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Hosea chapter 6. Lord willing, this week we'll read, uh, this morning we'll read uh, chapter 6 through 8. As a matter of review, God has called this poet or this po- this prophet by the name of Hosea to uh, take a wife of harlotry uh, as a picture of uh, God's relationship with uh, Israel, which was an adulterous relationship in a sense. Uh, Israel was unfaithful to the Lord, despite. Uh, multiple expressions of his love, multiple warnings by the prophets. And, um, and so Hosea has to take this wife of harlotry, has children of harlotry, we learn uh, at the beginning of the book, and then even after he takes her as a wife, she commits adultery. He then literally buys her from the slave market. And it's just a, a picture of this ongoing, um, uh, relentless, uh, selfless love that God has for his children. And uh, so Hosea had to kind of live that out as, you know, many of the prophets, we know Ezekiel, if you recall back uh, those early chapters of Ezekiel, he had to live out some, honestly, some pretty bizarre metaphors uh, in his own personal life. And so Hosea is uh, doing that here. Well, anyway, uh, chapter four began this sort of introduction that we, we read last week, sort of a picture of a courtroom scene, if you will. And uh, that goes on uh, through chapter 10, and then chapter 11 to the end of the book is a bit of a transition to sort of the final restoration of Israel by God. And it's almost like, if you picture it this way, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, there's a lot of detail in the midst of that, but if you picture almost like this courtroom scene, God is the judge and the prosecutor, and God is bringing evidence against Israel for sort of the crime, the crime of infidelity, the crime of, of unfaithfulness, the crime of, a, of spiritual adultery, uh, all of that. And so it's like God is laying the case and, you know, we're going to pronounce guilty, you know, but just like any uh, criminal trial, there's sort of the, you know, innocent or guilty, and then there's the sentencing, Right. It's almost like two different things. And so, uh, in a sense, we see God is going to pronounce guilty, and then the sentence is redemption. It's really amazing. And again, as we highlight this in the past, I want to do it again. God deals with individuals and with nations, okay? And as individuals, we're all what? Innocent or guilty? Every one of us are guilty. We were born guilty. We'll never fix our guiltiness, ever. Uh, many of us try. Many of us think that we have. Many of us think we can do it a little bit. Maybe Many of us think we can help God. And we all kind of do that at some time in some ways or another. But the reality is we're all flat-out guilty, period. That makes us all even, which is nice. Uh, but the solution then is that God pronounces the sentence. The sentence is grace, and grace and mercy through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. That's how it applies to us individually. As it applies to nations, to groups of people, uh, that sort of thing, 
God does kind of, you know, have some judgment for nations. And so, you know, we could, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility. As we've mentioned before, you know, we sort of the elephant in the room, if you will, as we read through some of these things is I could be a saved individual and yet live in a nation that God chooses to judge, right? And that's very possible. And the way things are out there, that's not outside the realm of possibility. But I could, I could take that a little bit too far and I could say, you know, God is just, you know, first of all, God can do whatever, whatever he wants. I don't tell God what to do. I don't presume to tell God what to do. I don't, you know, necessarily predict what God is going to do. But God would be not unreasonable to judge America in some way, right? Because of the path that America has taken. But in that, in that, there is always a remnant. There's always a faithful few. Elijah, Elijah thought he was the only one. And God said, oh, by the way, you're one of 7,000, right? And there's always a faithful remnant, and we always have opportunity to be a part of that faithful remnant. So God's dealing with nations does not negate God's love and grace and mercy for us. And it also doesn't negate God's um, uh, possibility, God's leaving room for a nation itself to repent and turn around, right? And so that's kind of what he's talking about as we go through here. But anyway, so keep in mind now we're talking about the nation as God is uh, carrying out this courtroom scene. So again, this courtroom scene sort of goes from uh, chapter 4 on to chapter 10. We're going to read some more of that today uh, in these chapters starting in in chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal, heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And so, you know, in the midst of pronouncing judgment, again, God uh, periodically uh, just throws in these sort of glimmers of hope. Uh, But again, the hope is only by the grace of God through repentance. So uh, the only solution for this nation to get right with God is not a political solution. It's not the right alliances with the foreign nations. It's not the right uh, false religion or idolatry. Uh, it It is only through repentance. And that's the only way that anybody ever comes to the Lord. He says, after two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And so probably sort of a a poetic sort of reference in a sense, Uh, two days, third day. uh, Some commentators say this is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Some people extrapolate that into some, um, you know, if a day is like a thousand years, Peter tells us, they, you know, put it in groups of thousands of years. That's uh, beyond my realm of speculation, but I just tell you that that's out there if you want to go looking for it. Um, the context here is the healing of, G, uh, of God's people. And so the healing of God's people, I think, is, this, is a bit of a hint to uh, the two days and the third day uh, he will raise us up. as sort of a, a reference, uh, perhaps, to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. He says, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain, to the earth. And so, again, we call, recall from last week, uh, it says, last week we said that part of the, uh, the problem with the Jewish people was they had rejected the knowledge of God. And you could talk about knowledge of God in, diff- in, in lots of different ways. The New Testament word we have, uh, the Greek, is gnosko. It's an experiential knowledge. We've talked about that a million times. Like, you know, I, I 
I sort of, you know, know some famous person, but it's like I don't know them, right? Like I know of them, but I don't know them. You know, whereas, you know, there's sort of uh, levels, you know, I know, my, I know you guys, right? But I know my uh, wife and family different than I know you guys, right? And so the word know can encompass a lot of things, but with the Lord, there's an experiential, relational knowing. And the particularly, um, as we looked back last week, we looked in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan chose to uh, first deliver his attack on Adam and Eve. The first attack was on the word of God and the second attack was on the character of God. And I think as we see those attacks by the enemy throughout history and even to today, we see that that's the knowledge of God that we really need to capture. We need to capture the word of God to, you know, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, our, lo- our, you know, our, our low beam and our high beam. We've got to know the Word of God if we're going to navigate this life, period. No question about it. We've, we have got to know the Word of God. And not just our, if I can say it this way, not just our favorite books, not just our pet doctrines, not just our pet chapters. And, uh, you know, I've known over the years there, there's, you know, now, having said that, we're a Calvary Chapel Church, right? What's our, what's our pet thing? Our pet thing is we teach chapter by chapter through the whole thing, right? That, that can be its own sort of religion, right? Uh, but it's not a bad one, right? Uh, but we understand the Word of God. And why, why can it, how can it be like our own pet thing and be its own religion? By not knowing the character of God, right? If I know the Word of God without the character of God, I'm just an encyclopedia of, of cool facts, and I can uh, pretty quickly take on um, the identity of the Corinthians that Paul exhorted. Knowledge does what? Puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. I've got to know the Word of God, but I also have to know the character of God. The character of God is love and grace and mercy, compassion, humility, all of those things that he wants us to, to manifest as we live out the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, specifically, they rejected the knowledge of God's word. They rejected the knowledge of God's character. And we must strive to know those things more than our own man-made theology, more than our own man-made religious duty or sense of self-righteousness. But even in this, there's always, and I want us to see this in these first couple of verses, there's always room for repentance. There's always room to be uh, redeemed. Look at this in the middle of there, verse 3. Let us pursue the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Lord. Are we pursuing the knowledge of the Lord today? I think it's an honest question for us. Are we pursuing the knowledge of God? Are we pursuing a better understanding of who God is and how that should impact our lives? Are we pursuing... I want to know what God has to say to me today through his word. Is that a pursuit that I have, right? It needs to be. I can very quickly sort of devolve into I do my thing, right? We can all do that. We do our thing. We perform our religious duty. We show up. I was telling somebody I saw yesterday, um, you know, see you tomorrow. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. I have to, right? I got to be here today, right? It's the old joke. Uh, can I have 30 seconds? 
Okay, good, thanks. Appreciate that. Johnny's lying in bed on Sunday morning. His mom comes and says, Johnny, wake up. It's time to go to church. I don't want to go. I can't stand those people. Johnny, that's kind of a bad attitude, you know? You, uh, those people are just discouraging. They beat me up. They, you know, they just, they're not nice. They're, you know, I just don't want to see those people this morning. Johnny, you got to wake up and go to church. I don't want to see those people. Johnny, wake up. All right, Mom, give me three good reasons why I should go to church this morning. Mom says, well, Johnny, number one, you know, the Bible says don't forsake the assembling of, of the saints. All right. Johnny, number two, um, you might learn something. And number three, you're the pastor. <laughs> so I don't feel like Johnny, by the way. But anyway, you know, sometimes we can go through our religious thing, right? Just go through our drill. Go through our, that was worth 30 seconds, don't you think? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, sometimes we just kind of do our thing because it's our thing. And we really need to do our thing as an outgrowth of, oh my goodness, I love the Lord. I am blown away by what he's done for me, a wretched sinner. And I just want more of him. I just want to know him. I want to know him more. And so I'm going to come to church this morning because I want to know, I want to know about him and I want to know him. And then my religious drill, if you will, is only an expression of that. And that, believe me, that sorts out the, that sorts out the incentives pretty quickly, right? So, verse 4, he goes on. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. And so uh, Ephraim, again, uh, you know, in the days after King Solomon, the nation was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom was the tribe of Ephraim. And so sometimes the, word, the, the reference to Ephraim is really just a reference to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and so that's what he's talking about. Oh, northern kingdom of Israel, what should I do to you? Oh, Judah, what should I do to you? Uh, your faithfulness uh, is like a morning cloud. Like the early dew, it goes away. You ever wake up? We woke up this morning. Uh, we're driving out the driveway. One of our kids said, hey, is that frost? I said, no, nope, it's the morning dew. We're going to hear about it here in a little bit, right? It's morning, is, and if we went back there right now and looked out in the grass, right, it'd be gone a couple hours later, right? Is our faithfulness like that, Right? We can get so fired up, right, you know, have a kumbaya moment and, you know, uh, the Lord touches our hearts. We, you know, man, I'm going to serve him forever. You know, and then lunchtime rolls around. You decide you want to do something else because you're hungry or whatever. Life changes. Challenge comes. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, right, whatever it is. It's careful. We've got to be careful not to be that. We've got to be careful that we are, our faithfulness is really not like the morning cloud that just goes away. And, uh, you know, that's what the Lord wants for us. The Lord doesn't want to punish us. The Lord wants to express uh, a, a, a desire for us to have that faithful, long, long-term, ongoing relationship with him. You know, faithfulness, faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way right? I am convinced, I'm convinced that it's impossible to live a life of faithfulness. Like if the Lord gives us, if the Lord grants us a long life on earth, 
right? Let's say the Lord lets us live to be 100. Anybody 100 here? You're thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah. It, no one is 100. I knew I was on safe ground, right? If we would live to be 100, and if we would serve the Lord faithfully until our last breath, I think we could call that a miracle, right? Would you do that by willpower, right? Anybody ever been on diet? You going to be faithful for a hun- until you're 100? No, right? We don't do that by willpower. We do that only by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? What's faithfulness? Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. We only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, but it is a long-term thing. And this Christian life, it's like the difference between a sprint and a marathon. It's a marathon we're running, right? Remember the parable of the sower, right? Sower went out to sow. First seed land on hard ground. That, that's represented the heart of a person that says, I don't have anything to do with it. Second seed landed on uh, uh, shallow ground, rocky ground, right? And that represented seed that said, yeah, I'm all in. And then, you know, a couple years later, they're not all in, right? That's a legitimate type of person, unfortunately, right? And so uh, we want to be the kind of, that is faithful, that, that goes the distance, and that only happens by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are, the, are like light that goes forth. And so, you know, God is, is hewning. God is, you know, when you think of hewn, you think of a, you think of a sculpture, right? I'm hewning out this stone to make, uh, make you into the person that uh, I want to be, is what God would say. And you ever notice that people are kind of, People are trying to, I don't know what the word is, hewn? Hewn? Yeah. People are trying to chop you into uh, uh, the sculpture, right? I'm butchering this analogy, aren't I? People are trying to mold you into their image. The world is trying to mold you into its image, right? I'm reading a book right now that I wouldn't recommend to you. It's written by a guy that's clearly not a Christian, so I can't recommend it, but it is interesting. Uh, about just the, the, uh, our inability in modern-day America to focus, right? And one of the reasons, <clears throat> there are lots of reasons that we have a challenge focusing in our society, uh, the society that really uh, is so supercharged that it's, it's way off the rails of how we were designed, I think, to live. Um, one of the things is, is social media. I don't want to freak you guys out, right? Too much. But it's like the algorithms in social media, have you ever noticed uh, you're buying something and it says you might also like this? And they pegged you pretty good, didn't they? Right? Or, you know, you're watching a YouTube video about something and you might also like this. They peg you pretty good, don't they? Right? It's like they're molding you into their image with their own algorithms, right? They know what you buy and what sites you hit and where you click and, you know, what you like. And it's all about basically locking you into screen time, right? And uh, um, so there's all kinds of efforts by people to sort of mold us into their image. God has hewn them by the prophets, like he uses the prophets to 
try to bring restoration to these people. He's trying to mold them into, the, into a point of restoration, even sometimes with discipline. Sometimes the hewning process is, is painful. Then he goes on, he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. Everybody there? One of many, Je- one of many uh, discussions that Jesus has with uh, religious people. So he got into a boat, verse, nine, verse 1, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, of, son be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know the power, that, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, at his, in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So they arose and follow, he rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So he's kind of been... You know, he's been, he does this miracle on this guy, he uses this as an opportunity to kind of uh, speak into the lives of the religious leaders, and then he gets a tax collector, which is, uh, you know, about the most uh, heinous person in society. Um, and interestingly, a tax collector named Matthew, so probably a tax collector that was, you know, grew up in a, in a particularly Jewish home, and that's a whole other discussion but a guy that would have deliberately uh, rejected his upbringing to become a, a Roman tax collector. And now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 6. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus quotes that to uh, these religious leaders. Turn over to chapter 12 of Matthew, same book. Starting verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? 
Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, again quoting from Hosea chapter 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So I point this out to tell you that in two completely different contexts, it would appear that Jesus quotes this verse. Back to Hosea. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see the idea? We have an extreme example in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. We see that they were so obsessed with religion. Remember, we've got to know the word of God and the what? Character of God. They were so obsessed with their religion their religious duty, their religious rights and wrongs, to make sure that we got it right, that they completely missed the character of God. Is that possible today? Could we possibly be so concerned with the... And now, I love the Word of God. Psalms tells us, you have elevated your Word higher than your name. Okay? But catch this now. The Word of God, we could, we could micro on it and miss the character of God, right? What did the Pharisees do? They, didn't, they, they needed to know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so we see this picture. If Jesus quotes it twice, it must be significant. And I think for each of us, we need to ask the question, are we more religious or are we more merciful? Are we more religious or are we more merciful? The Pharisees were religious. And so we need to know him as well as his word. Verse, verse 7. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. They were, there they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. Now this is interesting in, the, in terms of the Old Testament law. You may or may not recall, when God sort of brought the Israelites into the promised land, set up their cities, they conquered the land uh, during the time of Joshua and established it there and set up their cities, they had what was called cities of refuge. Remember that? And there were six cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan River and three on the other side of the Jordan River, that God said, okay, you need to establish these as cities of refuge. And here's how it goes. If somebody gets in a squabble, Right? Like if I get in a squabble with somebody, right? Mike, we'll pick on Mike. I get in a squabble with Mike over here, right? And if I get in a squabble with Mike and Mike accidentally dies, <laughs> right? And the only thing scarier than that would be like the wrath of Sandy, right? So Sandy's going to come get me, right? And take vengeance, right? Should be called the avenger of blood, right, in, in the Old Testament vernacular, right? So I would have a city that I could flee to, right, because I just sort of accidentally killed Mike, right? I mean, I guess this happened, right? I don't know. I wasn't there, but, you know, it's in the Scripture. So a, a city where I could go to that, like, was a refuge for me while we sorted out the justice, right? It's a, it's a brilliant system, honestly. Well, two of those cities were Gilead and Shechem, 
all right? So these are, so God is, again, we got to sometimes kind of go back to the Jewish culture, the Jewish law, the Jewish mindset. These people would have known what God's talking about. He's saying, basically, you know, like guys going on to, to these cities of refuge, and there's like bands of robbers lying in wait for them, right? It kind of undermines the whole purpose of the city of refuge. And so uh, we see here that, you know, that's not how, God wants it to work. That's not God's intention uh, of justice. We don't want robbers lying in wait for us. And so he says, verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. And so the idea is you got a group of people who have rejected the knowledge of God uh, an entire nation, really, in a sense, that's rejected the knowledge of God, rejected uh, the word of God, rejected the character of God, and as a result, they got sort of chaos, right? You can't even go to a city of refuge without being attacked by a band of robbers, and the whole thing is, is uh, chaotic, and it's because their faithfulness fades away like the morning dew, right? And they haven't repented. So it goes on, chapter 7. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them, and they are before my face. So we, we transition here a little bit. Basically, he said, I would have healed. I, I desire to heal these people. I'm pronouncing judgment. I'm, 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 I'm sort of bringing the charges against these people, but I really want to see them restored, right? Sometimes we can read these verses and we can say, man, God is just almost enjoying this. And that's everything but the case. God's desire is for them to be restored. But it's like they don't consider in their hearts what might happen. Let's, I want to review these for just a second. Turn over to 1 Timothy, if you would. Chapter 2. I believe these are critical verses doctrinally in our modern day. Because there's a, there's a um, I want to be careful a little bit, but there's a very popular doctrine out there that basically says God is so sovereign that some people are just born, to, born for heaven and some people are born for hell. It is what it is. Sorry if you're on the wrong side, right? Now, after all we've said about the heart of God, do you think that reflects the character of God? No. First Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Notice this. This is underlined in my Bible. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does God want anybody to go to hell? Zero people in hell is what God wants but God gives us free will. Somehow those things, God is sovereign, yet he gives us enough free will. We don't know how that works in, ter in terms of our brain. And I always like when the scripture substantiates itself. Turn over to 2 Peter. 
after Hebrews and James. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, that means he doesn't want, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires everybody to be saved. He desires it so much that he made the way possible for everybody to be saved. And so that is available to anyone who chooses. But these people, the Israelites in that day, they thought, it says they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. There's another principle, I'm sorry if you don't, uh, don't want to make you flip too much, but if you go to Galatians chapter 6, I want to just, this will be the last flipping for a bit. There's sort of two sides to this thing. On one hand, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God's desire for the Pharisees was, you need to understand mercy. There's another kind of person that says, I think I can get away with whatever I want, and it doesn't matter, right? And God has a way of speaking that which we need depending on who we are, right? Remember the rich young ruler, right? Came to Jesus, hey, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you do this and this and this. Oh, I did all that, right? What did he do? He nailed him at the point that he needed to be nailed at. Oh, okay, your problem is covetousness. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, right? That was the solution for that guy. God gives us, if we're, if our ears are open, God gives us sort of both pieces. Like, if we're, if we're sort of trying to hide in our sin, he says this, verse 7, uh, chapter 6 of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We're going to reap what we sow, right? There are some that live like deliberate sin, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. God's not going to, you know, I can, plant, I can plant corn seeds and expect bean plants to grow up, right? And usually whenever you hear this, you, there's some flavor of, well, my situation is different. You know, you could say, well, you know, usually when you plant corn plants or corn seeds, these tall stalks grow up that, you know, raccoons like to climb up, Right? and you're going to grow corn. You plant corn seeds, you're going to grow corn. You plant bean seeds, you're going to grow beans. And, and somewhere along the line, in a spiritual sense, there's this idea that, well, yeah, I know that's usually how it works, but my situation is different. If you ever hear one of these discussions or find yourself saying this, well, my situation is different, can I just tell you, be careful and read Galatians chapter 6. On the other hand, if we don't wrestle with some of that stuff and we think we're all good. God tells us what we need, right? I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? And it's like he gives us both of these, both, both sides of this, if you will.
Verse 3. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. Some uh, commentators say this is a reference to, there was a period of time uh, during the ministry of Hosea that uh, about 20 years from seven, roughly 752 to 732 B.C., when there were like four kings assassinated, it was just political chaos. And so he's talking about probably the time of political chaos in, during the nation. And he says they are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker, he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened in the day of our king. Princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven. They lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They're all hot like an oven. They have devoured their judges and their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. So again, another metaphor. We see lots of these metaphors um, through daily life, some of which we understand clearly, some of which are a little difficult during, you know, because of the cultural differences. But anyway, here we have a metaphor of an oven and a lump of dough. So the baker heats up the oven, right? He kneads the dough, right? Does whatever it is. What do you do with dough? Like, is this what it is? You knead it, you fold it, and you fold it again, and you keep doing that, you mash the dough, and then you leave it there, right? And so he would have left it there and left the oven on uh, through the night. And, and then by the morning, the leaven, which leaven throughout the scripture is always a picture of sin, right? The yeast, the bread, the dough has done what by morning? It's risen, right? And so, you know, sometimes, and now the oven's still hot. And so it's a picture. Sometimes if we let sin kind of reign in our lives, we think we're getting away with it. We think it's like, okay, the, the baker just went to bed and everything's good, right? But no, whatever man sows, he's going to reap. Sooner or later, whatever man sows, he's going to reap. And I think there's a thing, if I could just warn myself and whoever else wants to listen, there's a thing where I put that corn, plant, that corn seed in the ground and there's just dirt, right? The stalk hasn't sprouted. And there's a temptation a little bit to think, all right, I'm getting away with it, right? Like I can knead the dough and go to bed. Nothing's going to happen. But that sin that's there, it will rise, right? Whatever man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap corruption. And it's, it's, interesting, it's always interesting to me. It's a little bit uh, telling that God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Those are strong words. And so I would encourage myself as well as all of us, sow to the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, sow to the Spirit. Verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. Anybody ever notice gray hairs sneak up on you? I got to tell you a great story. Some of you may not realize this, but I was Opie Taylor redhead when I was a kid. Opie Taylor 
big time. Carrot top, the whole nine yards. I got, I heard it all, right? To the point I kind of, you know, I kind of grew up a little bit, you know, not fully appreciating my red hair. And then somewhere along my 40th birthday, you know, red and gray are two primary colors, by the way. And if you mix them, you get blonde. So I'm like, cool, I'm blonde, right? And then you kind of, your brain kind of sticks there, right? And in my mind, I'm like, now, very blonde, right? And in my mind, a few years ago, this is kind of funny, I, I got a new shirt, I feel what it was. I think it was a yellow shirt. And my daughter, one of my daughters, who's usually very respectful, says, uh, that shirt looks nice. Goes well with your white hair. I'm like, who are you talking to? <laughs> I don't have white hair. I got blonde hair. And it's like, you know, these things kind of creep in on you, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't have blonde hair anymore, right? I certainly, and, and, and now, you know, so you have, these, you have these moments, these reference points, like, right, when she says, yeah, that yellow shirt goes good with your white hair, right? And now my latest reference point, I see this uh, sometimes, because, you know, there's a little red, and you can t see little glimmers of red in my descendants. And people will look around the family, you know, even kind of a little hint in the grandkids. And they'll say, where's the red come from? And I'm like, duh. <laughs> they don't even know. They don't even know if I used to be. They, I, they could, for all they know, I used to be blackheaded, right? In my mind, I'm just, a, you know, a transitional redhead. Now let's read that again. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he doesn't know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it, right? These things just sort of happen, don't they? They just sort of happen. Next thing you know, you're one of them, right? Can I suggest that's what happens when aliens devour our strength? What's an alien? Well, it's a three-headed monster that comes from outer space. No, it's... It's a, it's a person, most likely a human being, who has a different worldview than I do, who doesn't appreciate the God of the Bible. And if I'm not careful, if I give that person enough room of influence in my life, that person can devour my strength, and I've got to be careful. And as a result, if I let that go on long enough, what am I like? I'm like a cake that's unturned, like a pancake, right? Sits on the oven, one side is burned and the other side is, is liquid dough, right? It's worthless. And so it's a great picture of that. So he says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all of this. Again, no repentance, pride is the root of it. Ephraim, verse 11 is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. So again, another, another beautiful metaphor is that, you know, they think they can go to Egypt or Assyria for strength and they're really like stupid birds, right? Now I love birds. You know I love birds. But they're not real smart, right? Now, 
when we first moved into our house, uh, some of you, if you've been to our house, you know that, you know, we got a, basically a, a, our whole south wall is a bunch of windows, right? And when we first moved to our house, there was this red cardinal that would, like, fly into the window all the time, right? You ever had this experience, yeah. right? And it was just like, it was relentless, and it would just keep flying into the, to the window, uh, you know, obviously because it saw a reflection of itself, thought that was the enemy bird right? I called it Theo because it was like a theologian uh, banging its head against a, an object that didn't exist, uh, an enemy that didn't exist, right? And it's just like a stupid bird, right? It, was, it wasn't until many years later that I realized that was my dead me- grandmother giving me a message, right? <laughs> now, for the purpose of the recording, uh, last week we talked about uh, cardinals being uh, sometimes a picture of the crazy theology we come up with to solve life's challenges. And I don't believe that that was my dead grandmother, but it was a stupid burden. All right? So, it's stupid to go to Egypt for a God-sized problem. It's stupid to go to Assyria for a God-sized problem. It's like flying into a window repeatedly. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. It's like they won't let up. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Can I tell us this? We all stumble at times. Tracy and I were talking about uh, when we're we're preparing for this uh, marriage class we're doing. One of the verses that kind of came across that we, it was out of James says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. The context of the marriage teaching was, you know, guess what? Your spouse stumbles, and if you think that you just got the wrong one, well, the next one you go looking for will also stumble, and by the way, you're going to stumble, right? We all stumble in many ways, not just one way, not just five ways. We all stumble in many ways. That's our reality. And so when we do, we immediately have a choice. When we stumble, we have a choice. And we're generally going to run to God or run away from God. And can I suggest, if we try to run away from God, if you ever think about doing that, can I just tell you this? Read Psalm 139. Hey, by the way, where can, I, where can I escape from your presence? If I go to, you know, if I go away high, if I go away low, I can't get away from your presence. Read Psalm 139. Read the book of Jonah, right? Hey, Jonah, why don't you go to Nineveh? Uh, I'm out of here, right? He goes to Tarshish, probably modern-day Spain, right? Imagine that in the ancient world, going from Israel to from Joppa there on the Mediterranean coast, all the way to modern-day Spain. What's he trying to do? He's trying to escape God. How'd that work? We have a choice when we stumble. We either run toward God, and what do we find when we run toward God? Redemption, mercy, grace, amazing grace that we don't deserve that makes us just appreciate him more and more and all of that, and it, it just works it all. Or... We try to run from him. And like my pastor up in Indianapolis used to say, the hound of heaven, right? The hound of heaven will track us down, 
because he loves us. We have a choice whether to run to God or from God. Verse 14, they did not cry out to me with their heart when they walked upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me, though I disciplined and strengthened their arms. Yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the most high. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall like the, by the sword. For their cursings of their tongue, they shall be, shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And so, you know, they keep doing the same things over and over again. They do everything but repent. And again, you know, when we stumble, oftentimes we'll do everything but repent. Chapter 8, set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. And so they're going to, you know, he says, uh, set the trumpet. The trumpet's a reference to, uh, you know, battle. Probably a reference, most commentators say, that the Assyrians are going to come and bring judgment. And Israel's defense, when, Israel, when, when God brings the Assyrians to bring judgment, Israel's defense is going to be, they'll cry to me, hey, God, we know you. Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, there's uh, somehow, Jesus' own words, there's going to be a group of people who thought they were doing and arguably, what's interesting is, these are amazing signs, right, that they claim to have done. Whether they really did them or not, we don't know, but at least they claim to have done them. Uh, prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name, done many wonders in his name. And he says, I'll declare, I never knew you. And so, rather than doing all those things, we would do well to know Jesus, to know the heart of God, to know the word of God, to know the character of God. And when the time comes, you know, if, if, you know, when judgment comes to a nation and they say, we know you, and yet they've rejected him, well, then they don't know him in the way he wants to be known, right? And so we have opportunity to know God uh, in the way he wants to be known according to his word. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. Even from their, from their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. So we talked last week about, you know, their false religion, their idolatry. They, they would make idols and then worship them, to seek counsel from them, and that's just... Um, it's crazy. And so the calf in Samaria uh, is a picture of that. They had their own political solutions. They had their own idolatry, their own religious solutions. And again, uh, we've got to be very careful. We don't look to political solutions to our national problems. There is no political solution to our national problems. There are God solutions to God-sized problems. And there's no uh, religious idolatry solution to 
uh, our national problems or even to our own life's problems. And so uh, God is the answer to those things. They sowed, they sowed the wind and reap whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. And so uh, that's their own version of sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. That's what happens to them. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them. And shall, they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Again, a, a hint of I will gather them, and we see that in the last days. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the law, uh, I'm sorry, the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they did not sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. So see this, they sacrifice offerings and he's not accepting it. And he has written them the things of his law, but they considered it a strange thing. You know, sin makes us numb to the word of God. Makes it seem like it's a strange thing to us. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities but I'll send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. Judgment was coming. So shortly after the writing of this, judgment came by the nation of Assyria, right? And uh, that was a warning then for the southern kingdom of Judah who would face a similar fate about 150 years later. So Israel's spiritual adultery brought judgment. They tried to cover up their adultery with religion, with uh, political alliances, uh, with everything but repentance. If we ever find ourselves flirting with sin, recognize that, uh, that God sees it. Don't forget that. And if we do stumble, we run to God, not away from God. And if we're not, if we, you know, and if, Lord willing, none of us are struggling with that right now, we're, if we're not careful, we then have our own struggle, right? What's my struggle? No, I'm not struggling with anything right now, right? That's its own struggle, right? And to that, we need to know God's heart is to desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? Because you're going to encounter people that struggle. You're going to encounter people that need to be picked up with compassion. You know, everybody's got a story. You ever notice that? I love hearing people's stories. Everybody's got a background. Everybody's got sort of pieces that make them who they are. Some of those pieces positive, some of those pieces maybe negative, maybe some scars, maybe some wounds that need to be nursed. Maybe some pride that needs to be whittled, right? But we all got a little sort of constellation of all of those things. And I think if we know the Word of God, and the character of God and experience Him. And when, we, when the Spirit tells us to repent, to repent and not look up some kind of other man-made solution, then, then we're set up for a life of faithfulness, the kind of faithfulness that can be carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You that You've given us all that we need for a life in godliness. You made a way. 
You made a way for each of us individually. You've even made a way for the nations. For national repentance. And yet, Lord, we see in the nation of Israel our our human tendency to try lots of other solutions when we find ourselves in trouble. But Lord, help us to be quick to repent, quick to run to you, quick to um, humble ourselves so that we can um, walk the narrow road. Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.